Welcome to the High Motor Podcast. Andrew Doughty here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. This is episode one of the High Motor Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for giving this a shot. I think you're going to like it, and here's why. College football. So that's going to be maybe maybe 60% of the show. 50, 60, 70%, somewhere in that ballpark. We're going to have a meaty dose of college basketball and then just everything else. I have been working over the last month or two to lock down some really strong guests for the High Motor Podcast. Hey, really quickly on Twitter, you can find the podcast at High Motor Pod, at High Motor Pod, and I'm at a Dowdy88. A D O U G H T Y 8-8. I'm going to refuse to waste your time with mindless chatter here, with that filler space. You know, when you fire up most podcasts, there's like that two, three, four minute period of just pure crap. Like, what are we even doing here? It, it reminds me of in the office when Michael teases the Bruce Springsteen tickets for their crime aid fundraiser. And then he goes on and on and on. Jim leans in and says something to the effect of, do you even need us here for this? It's like multiple minutes of inside jokes, just mindless meandering. Like, do you, are you aware that you're recording right now? Are you aware that you pressed that red button and we're now listening to you talk about your dog, your co-host's breakfast? His McDonald's breakfast sandwich didn't have sausage, but it was a dollar off because he had a coupon. And then he couldn't find a parking spot when he was late to recording the podcast. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to go straight to the goods. If you want that mindless chatter that is going to waste your precious podcasting time, you can find that elsewhere. I'm going to have guests, probably one or two per episode. Today we're going to have two, maybe three uh, in the future if we get really aggressive, but it'll usually be one or two per episode. And then I will break things up with my takes on things from that day, things from that week in college football and college basketball, everything out, uh, movies, TV, travel, whatever. I'm going to tell some quick stories. I will give some actual takes on things. I will give you thought-out takes. I'm not going to give you that mindless wandering of the mind. I hope that works for you. So I chatted with Tim Tebow uh, this week about the playoff, about baseball, about Urban Meyer. Got some predictions from him. So I'm going to play that interview in a minute. And then later on, I'm going to have Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. He was in Arlington for that boring Cotton Bowl blowout. want to ask him about Clemson. He spent a lot of time around that Clemson program, a lot of time around Trevor Lawrence, talking to people around him lately, and then others, uh, some other college football stuff with him. First, though, my take on this explosion of reactions to the bowl games that we've seen over the last three or four days, the high-level bowl games, the New Year's Six games. Stop reacting to them, I think. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing real to react to here. Like, these bowl games aren't going to change anything this year, nor should they. I think that certain results could drive expansion or could push things to keep the same. I think that's extremely reasonable to say that. But in terms of this actual season, there's just there's nothing real to react to. I mean, these are bowl games. Let's keep in mind, these are bowl games. These are not regular season games that actually mean anything. Like, is the committee gathering this week to discuss the semifinals? The, the Rose Bowl, Ohio State's win, UCF's loss, Georgia's loss? Are they doing all their homework, watching those games, and then coming together uh, today, tomorrow, Friday to discuss them? No, of course they're not doing that. Like, they might be watching them out of curiosity for entertainment, whatever reason. 
but they're not putting any stock into these games and then coming back next year and saying, oh, guys, remember in the Rose Bowl, Ohio State looked pretty good. Remember, Georgia lost. They shouldn't be doing that, nor should you. Like, these games aren't the regular season. They're not conference championship games. They're bowl games. I know people don't want to hear it, but they're meaningless exhibition bowl games. After three, four, five-week layoffs, tons of injured guys, tons of guys not playing who maybe could have pushed themselves to play but don't want to make an injury worse, either for their offseason, spring ball, NFL future, whatever. These games, they're fun to watch. Most... To be fair, most bowl games have been trashed this year, but we've had some okay ones. Yesterday, New Year's Day, every single bowl game was was a one-score game. Throughout the game, it wasn't, but it ended up being a one-score game. That's pretty good. I think we went five for five yesterday. But that's all they are. They're they're just games. I, I guess my question to you is, are you even enjoying the game itself anymore? Or does it immediately become, what does this game mean in the big picture? Like, what bucket can I put this in? Pick a side. I feel like everyone is screaming to pick a side for everything. Are you with UCF or are you against them? No middle ground there. What does their loss to LSU actually mean? What does their loss, their loss without Mackenzie Milton, against an LSU team without Greedy Williams, without half their starters playing all or most of that game after suspensions, ejections, sitting out, injuries, everything? What does it mean? It means that it was a fun, weird, wacky, enjoyable game. Like that muff punt, that was wild. The the Joe Burrow double fumble that he got back both times, that was that was crazy. The pick six, great entertainment. Ultimately, the game, it means nothing in the playoff debate. You can try to convince yourself that it means something, or some people on Twitter are going to try to convince you that it means something, saying the committee looks bad if this happens. The committee doesn't look bad at all. They made the right choices. The committee doesn't care. They're not watching that, that UCF game like, oh, UCF played okay against LSU and saying, you know what, maybe next year UCF should deserve more credit. I think it'll be different next year. UCF does play Stanford if they make a statement in that game and go undefeated again. I think they could have a shot. But it has nothing to do with this game. The committee is not watching these games and, and, and putting stock into it and then making changes to their process for next season. Like, Are we even watching football itself anymore or are we just debating it? And don't get me wrong. To be fair, I debate it all the time. I mean, it'd be concerning if I didn't. It is a giant, massive debate that needs to be had. The playoff debate is great. I think it's really good for the sport. It gets talked about all year. Think about it. And what what other sport on the planet are we talking about the playoffs that much in the preseason? Or that much in week one? And what other sport are we looking ahead when the, all the schedules are, are released? I think the ACC is the last Power 5 conference to release their schedule. That should come in the next two to three weeks, I believe. When that happens, we'll have all the Power 5 schedules out. We'll start talking playoff then. No other sport do you talk about the playoffs in in the preseason, week one, week two, week three, week four, every damn week, and it's awesome. But the game itself is more awesome. College football is awesome because of the game, because of the plays, the players, the, the pageantry, the atmosphere. The college towns, all of that stuff together makes college football awesome. It's not awesome because of the playoff debate. That just comes with it. And that's just a cool part of it. I guess I don't even know what I don't even know what point I'm trying to make anymore. I suppose it's it's that we don't need to find a bucket for everything. It doesn't immediately need to go, what does this mean in the big picture? What does UCF's loss mean? 
it means they lost the game. They lost an entertaining, a, a polarizing, they lost an entertainingly polarizing football game. That's it. Nothing more than that. All right, let's change gears. Like I said, I chatted with Tim Tebow this week. I'm going to play that for you right now. We're now joined by Tim Tebow. Tim, really appreciate the time today. I want to start with something that's been tossed around a lot this week after the playoff semifinals. I want to get your take on it. Did the results on Saturday, more so Clemson's blowout of Notre Dame uh, than Alabama's win over Oklahoma, did those results change your mind about whether the committee got it right or wrong and then also if there should be playoff expansion? No, it did not change my mind whatsoever, but I did not agree with the four that they had picked. Um, I said that um, even before um, they had picked them. Um, I didn't think those were the four best teams. I said it during and afterwards. Um, I um, I think there's a difference between best and deserving, and we're saying the four best right now, and I think they went with more deserving, and I just think that it, you know an easier way to fix that is to say best, uh, it's to say deserving, not best, or ha- or qualify it and say it's a mixture of both. I think um, if you look at it, probably talk to most coaches or analysts, and you say who would you um, pick in a game on a neutral field between Georgia and Notre Dame, between Ohio State and Notre Dame, there would be very few people that would have picked Notre Dame. And um, I think that they are a very deserving team. They're undefeated. They won every game. That's um, It's credit to their team, their coaching staff. Um, but I think it just proved um, what I think a lot of people believe, that they were not one of the four best teams in the country. So this is going to be a third time, four years, Alabama-Clemson title game, uh, fourth year in a row that they're going to be in the playoff. Do you think that the, the lack of championship parity is actually a real issue for college football right now? Um, I think a uh, couple of thoughts on that. One, I think that greatness needs to be appreciated by Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney in both of these programs. So what they've done is, is incredible. It's exciting. It's, um, it's something to appreciate and, um, and have a lot of respect for. But I'll say, on the other hand, is it exciting? Is it as exciting for college football as if you had new teams every year? I think new teams would be fresh, and, and it would be um, that would be a different form of exciting. But for me, as someone that tries to really appreciate greatness and what they're doing, I think these two coaches are um, it's, they're exceptional for, for the way that they've been able to sustain success. So it seems like you don't really see that as a problem in terms of the game itself and in terms of fan interest. Is that right? Well, I don't see it a problem as far as appreciating great football, great coaching. I do think that um, I do think that there is a fatigue from it for some people, not from me whatsoever. But I think some fans do have a fatigue. That's why I think that you'll see, um, you know, you know. People, people also want to see new teams. When the Lakers kept winning, people started rooting for the for other teams. When the Celtics were winning, they started rooting for other teams. When the Cowboys were winning, they started rooting for other teams. When, you know, I think that's happening against Clemson and Alabama right now too. Mark Richt, he retired on Sunday, uh, same day that Houston fired Major Applewhite. Both moves obviously coming after the early signing period. Uh, the Miami situation, particularly interesting. Manny Diaz going up to Temple, signing that class up there. Now he leaves there after just a few weeks. He takes over a team uh, whose recruits thought they were signing with Mark Richt. In your opinion, should those recruits be released from their letters of intent? And then just generally, do you think student-athletes should have 
more control over their careers? Well, I don't think you can just let student-athletes, um, you know, just do whatever they want. Um, but I think in a situation like this, um, boy, you just put those recruits in a really tough position. And when coaches are allowed to move so easily, you got to give a little bit of freedom to the athlete because, yeah, you go to a university, but th- that's that's supposed to be your, your you know, your dad away from home that you're going to play for. That's supposed to be a father figure. That's supposed to be your mentor. That's supposed to be your leader. And he talked you into coming to playing for him, whether that's your position coach, your OCDC, your head coach, and they leave before you even get to campus. That's just um, that's a really tough position to put a recruit in. And um, I think there should be um, just some ways that we need to look at that to make it a little bit a little bit easier in, in for for the recruit to figure out what's best for him, not just what's best for these coaches that are getting paid a lot of money. Hey, I'm I'm curious. I know that you, you try not to look in the past. You're always looking ahead. You're always looking toward that dream. But I mean, looking back 13 years ago, do you know? Do you think that you would have played elsewhere if Urban Meyer, for whatever reason, would have left after the 2005 season? Well, that's a good question, my man. Um, you know, I grew up a Gator. I loved the University of Florida, um, but but I mean, Coach Meyer was a big part of me choosing the University of Florida. Um, it was neck and neck with Florida and Alabama, and there were a lot of things that could have swayed me between the two. Um, so it, it's hard to say, you know, um, hindsight. But I, I, I do know that Urban had a big re- big part of me me going there. Do you think that? that student-athletes will get more power? I mean, do you think that that some things will actually change where, you know, whether that's automatically getting released from all your letters of intent if a coach leaves, transfers, whatever, do you think that eventually in the next three, four, ten years or whatever, that student-athletes will get more power with uh, player movement specifically? I, I don't necessarily – I think it's important to kind of, you know, pick the right words. I don't know that power is necessarily the right word I would go with. I would say maybe a little bit more freedom, if okay. that makes sense. Yeah. Like, um, there's still student-athletes, and there's still 18- to 22-year-olds, and there needs to be structure, there needs to be a system. Um, but I think at the same time that that when they go to play for a coach and there is transition, there is change, I think there also needs to be a, a little bit of freedom. What that is exactly, I'm not sure, but when a coach does everything to get you to go there and they leave before you step foot on campus, there's got to be a little bit of wiggle room and freedom for, for these 18-year-olds. Hey, Tim, you were on The Tonight Show a couple years back. I think it was like May of 2017 around there. And then um, you jokingly said that you're playing baseball for the money. You desperately needed that $1,200 a month check. Um, but I, I'm actually curious, how does how does your mindset as an athlete change when you go from a Florida locker room with unpaid players to an NFL locker room with several guys making seven or eight figures, and now you go to a baseball locker room with most guys are making around minimum wage. Money-wise, is there an environment or a locker room that you prefer? Do you see any difference in those locker rooms? That's a really interesting, good question, something I've literally never been asked before, and I appreciate that because I've been asked a lot of questions. But I've literally never been asked that question before in my entire life. To be honest, um, not trying to be like, you know, um, hum- 
you know, humble about it. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not super, for me, I, I really hope and believe that I have not made decisions for the money. I try to make decisions for what I believe in, for what I love, for my dreams, for my hopes, for my ambitions, for my faith. Like, that's why I make decisions. And obviously it's, it's nice to be paid for what you love and do too, you know? Um, but I think that all, all of those locker rooms you mentioned are different and unique, but I feel like um, what's the same about all of them is that you have people pushing towards their goal and their dreams. And, and obviously money does play a factor into it. People want to be able to take care of their family. Some, for some people, that's, a motiv- that's their biggest motivation is, you know, I got to get to the league so I can take care of my mom, so I can help my family. You know, and, and that's that's a that's a good goal. It's a dream for a lot of people, and that's it's important. I would never knock that. Um, some, you know, and, and that was true in, in, with some people at Florida and some people, you know, that I played with in the in the Mets organization. And that's a that's a good goal for me. It, it was that's special. I love being able to do things to help my family. But I think more important for me was um, was kind of the dream of trying to. Um, not live with regret, to push myself to the limit, to give everything I had to, um, you know, I'm not trying to be cliche or sound like in the military, but give everything I have, you know, to be all I am, to be my best in, in every situation that I have. And um, so I know that's a kind of a long way of answering your question, but that's kind of how, you know, I, I've, I feel about it. So you mentioned all the guys in the locker room moving toward a common goal, a common dream or whatever. So let me, let me ask you this. I think it was in your latest book, um, This Is The Day, the, the one that came out in September, I believe. You you said something to the effect of how you see like a, a minor league baseball game as, as just that, just a game. You, know, you, you love the game itself. You pour everything into it. But ultimately, in the end, it's just a game. And I'm curious, I, I would assume that you've been in locker rooms with guys who don't necessarily see it that way, who might see each game as more than just a game, you know, especially in minor league baseball with guys trying to get to that next level. Are those, are those clashing views ever an issue? Do you ever even notice that? That's a a good question as well. Uh, You know, I think that sometimes I've been both of those guys. I've been the guy that's pushing myself so hard because I want to get to a certain place. I want to get to a championship. I want to get to another level. I want to get like, those are dreams and, and hopes and ambitions that I have too. But then I think, What's most important for me is to be able to keep in perspective. Whether I do good or whether I go 0 for 4, that it's not the end of the world. And it's not what's most important because at the end of the day, it is a game. I'm playing a sport that's just a game. And so for me, that's how I try to keep into perspective because I am in degree competitive and I, I give everything I have and I will play with a you know, broken leg, broken hand, it doesn't matter. And, you know, but sometimes you also play with a broken heart when you lose or it goes bad or something. And so for me, it's also understanding that um, that there are more important things in the world than just sports. But I also will say that I'm so grateful that for the platform that sports has given me because it's given me the opportunity and the platform to be able to to make a difference, to be able to start a foundation, to be able to do what we're going to do here in about an hour and a half, you know, here with the AFCL Say Good Works team and, and our service project today where we're uh, refurbishing a school for underprivileged kids. Like, 
it gives, and you know, we get to do that with Florida Georgia Line and all these young guys on the team that are helping us, and like, you know, it gives me the chance to do all these things, and I, I wouldn't change that for the world. Hey, hey, would you mind telling us more about that? You know, I heard a little bit about that, but tell everybody what exactly you're doing down there in New Orleans with Florida Georgia Line and what you're doing with with that charter school. Well, um, Florida Georgia Line and myself have partnered with Allstate AFCA Good Works team, and uh, we're refurbishing a school um, here this morning. Um, and but it's it's not just today. We've done it all year. We've done it in Gainesville. We've done it in Atlanta. We did it in Jacksonville. We've done it in so many different places. And it's also a time where we get to honor the ASCA Good Works team members um, who have been making a difference in their community for their you know all year, but really their entire careers. And you know there are a lot of awards that we give out to um, the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the most touchdowns, interceptions, and tackles, but. Very few times do we give out awards to people for their character on and off the field, but that's really what the Good Works team is all about, and that's why I'm so honored to have been a part of it, but also to be an ambassador for it. It's because I feel like you know we want to be able to um, to transcend what players do on the field, and that's what this is about. They transcend their communities to making them a better place, to loving people, to helping people, to ultimately you know, making their community and the people's lives in it just a little bit better. Awesome. Yeah, we're hearing a little bit about that. Really appreciate you sharing that. Just a minute left here. Do you mind if I put you on the spot and throw five or six rapid-fire questions at you? Love it. Rapid-fire, let's do it. Will Urban Meyer coach college football again, yes or no? I don't think so. Who is the successor to Nick Saban whenever that may be? I think they'll want it to be Dabo, but I don't think he'll leave. Who is one minor league teammate that you think is going to be an incredible major league player? One guy that you've played with over the last couple years? Peter Alonzo. What is the most bizarre thing that a fan has heckled you for? (laughs) It's about everything, but um, I I don't know. A lot of times it seems like last year um, that the opposing um, teams would play the, the angels in the outfield theme when they all started flapping their wings when I would come up to that. So that was like a constant thing opposing teams would do to, I guess, sort of mock me a little bit, but I don't know. Would your 2008 Florida team beat this year's Alabama team on a neutral field? <laughs> come on, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it would be a really good game. I would, lo- I would love to, to see it, though. Last one, will will Kyler Murray play one snap in the NFL? Wow, good question. Um, I hope so. Yes or no? I, I, I don't know. Man, if someone can do both, I think he could. Hey, Tim, I'll let you go here. Uh, thanks again for the time. Enjoy the national championship. Uh, thanks for telling us about that really cool stuff you're down, doing down there in New Orleans. Best of luck with everything. Best of luck with spring training. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Thanks Great a lot. Question. Tim, take care. What do you what do you really think his answer is for that 2008 Florida versus 2018 Alabama question? I wasn't sure if he'd answer it. I, I thought if he did answer it, it'd be a I can't pick against my Gators type of answer. But like with with saying that, you're going to piss off Alabama fans. And maybe if he didn't work for the SEC Network, he might have answered that truthfully. But with his work on the SEC Network, he probably doesn't want to piss off fans within that network as much as he can. I was looking back at that Florida team. Uh, 2008, they didn't have a 3,000-yard passer. Tebow had about 2,700. They didn't have a 1,000-yard rusher, not even close. Tebow led the team with less than 700. He had 673. 
No 1,000-yard receiver. Again, not even close. Lewis Murphy, Percy Harvin, both around 650. Harvin, he was the only non-quarterback to score at least 10 touchdowns. He had 10. Tebow had 12 rushing. But the balance on that Gators team was unbelievable. They had six guys with at least 400 yards rushing. 14 guys had multiple tackles for loss. 14 guys had a sack. Nine had at least one interception. Nine guys had a pick. Five guys had at least three picks. Three players scored defensive touchdowns. Nine guys had at least 11 receptions. The team itself, they averaged less than one turnover per game. They had a plus 1.6 turnover margin per game. You know, it was just a different type of team. And it's not that long ago. Like, the game wasn't that different 10 years ago. I think that Tebow thinks they'd beat this year's Alabama. I don't think so. I say no for one reason. It's not that long ago, like I said, but with how dramatically players' bodies are changing, 10 years is an eternity. So I think that alone gives Alabama a huge edge. Although I would pay huge money to watch Tua, that stable of running backs, offensive line against Brandon Spikes was on that Gators team, Joe Hayden, uh, Major Wright, Ahmad Black, Janoris Jenkins. I would love to see what Quinn and Williams, uh, Isaiah Bugs, Christian Miller, Dylan Moses, Patrick Sertan do against that Tebow offense. All right, Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated joins the High Motor Podcast. Ross was in Arlington for the Cotton Bowl. He's dropped some stories on Trevor Lawrence lately, a lot of other good stuff. Ross, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, you didn't seem thrilled about firing up your air conditioning down there in Louisiana on New Year's Eve. You looking forward to some, some cooler weather in Santa Clara this weekend? Yeah, and that uh, it was pretty crazy. And on, on New Year's Eve, it was 75 degrees here. And I had to kick off the heat and put on the AC. And uh, so, yeah, you know, the weather forecast in uh, Santa Clara is pretty chilly, so... I won't have. Uh, I certainly won't have to use AC there. So after the Cotton Bowl, uh, you were in Arlington for the Cotton Bowl. You wrote about Trevor Lawrence. Um, the gist of the article, for those listening, you can find it on SI.com. Uh, the gist of the article, nothing phases him. Maybe the media spotlight a little bit, but those around him saying that nothing really truly rattles him. Uh, for what it's worth, maybe a couple of months ago, I remember Todd McShay saying something to the effect of that, that Lawrence is different um, and that he's never – he being Todd McShay, he's never heard this type of buzz or seen somebody like him even before he took a snap this year. Like McShay being a guy that doesn't follow recruiting that much, it meant a little bit something coming from somebody like that. Do you get the sense as you cover him, as you talk to those around him, that Trevor Lawrence is just different on some levels? Yeah, he is. You know, he's just, uh, <laughs> he's he's farther along, I think, first of all, than, than most freshmen. Uh, he has to kind of start with his physical abilities. Um, I mean, I, I talked to his uh, his uh, uh, quarterback, co- private quarterback coach, and that he started seeing in the eighth grade. And the coach said he arrived and was able to just throw the ball incredibly, uh, just really accurate. And uh, and then you talk about his size; and he's six foot six or six foot five, whatever. And, um, so he's just got that incredible build. And then mentally, what you mentioned, you know, he, he's just a little different than most freshmen. He's just really, really mature and um, really poised. And, you know, nothing seems to rattle him. And you talk to all his coaches at Clemson and they'll tell you about 
um, just how coachable he is and how you could throw whatever at him and uh, he won't get flustered or angry but he'll learn from it so he's just a really calm kid and yeah I think the only thing that can rattle him is, is, is the media which I wrote about um, after the, the playoff game I mean uh, you know it's about the only thing he looks uh, sometimes uncomfortable in, in the spotlight you know uh, on the post game spotlight or pre game spotlight but uh, during the game in the spotlight on the field he, he's, uh, he's incredible What do you think about the team dyma- uh, dynamic, you know, the roster makeup of Clemson. Yeah, they got a lot of young players, but they also have guys like like Dexter Lawrence and Christian Wilkins and some of these veterans that have been here for four years. And you got this kid coming from Cartersville, Georgia, to Clemson and competing for a national championship. Do you think any of that that team makeup has anything to do with it? Where yeah, he is leading a lot of youngsters, but then he's also looking up ahead to these guys that have been here that have played in two national championship games. Well, you gotta have it all. You know, you think you gotta have in, in Clemson's offense does the majority of Clemson's skilled players offensively are almost all freshmen and sophomores. I mean, I was crunching some numbers that'll be in a, probably be in a story later this week that post on SDI.com. But, um, you know, when you look at Clemson's totality as far as their their uh, freshmen and sophomores and, and their offense, it's about 75% of their offensive production comes from freshmen and sophomores. But you look at the defense and – it's predominantly, you know, upperclassmen, and especially on that line that you mentioned. I mean, those guys, you know, so you need both sides of the ball, obviously. And, and uh, you know, on the offensive line, they're they're also pretty pretty veteran too. So the skill spots, they are really young, um, and that's what probably scares some people about next year. They'll all be they'll all return and be back, um, but at other spots, they have that kind of veteran leadership. That, that you kind of need and, and you know go back in history and you'll see you know the championship team especially lately they have that mix you, you kind of have got to have that mix of different classes you know it's not just uh, seniors or it's not just freshmen that can carry a team but uh, they need everybody you know and, and uh, it was kind of a touching moment after that Cotton Bowl game I was on the field and uh, you know Trevor Lawrence was walking through the crowd and he kind of ran into Christian Wilkins, you know, senior defensive tackle, and, and uh, Christian and him shared like a little embrace. And it was funny. I mean, those guys are exact opposites. You know, one of them is this tall, blonde haired uh, quarterback who's a freshman, and the other, this big, kind of massive uh, defensive lineman who's a senior. And uh, you, you got to need both, you need both those guys. So you have spent a little bit of time around the Clemson program. Uh, you mentioned the defensive side of the ball. I'm curious your take on it. Um, what does your gut tell you about Brent Venables? What, do you think he'll ever leave for a head coaching job, or is he is he just as happy as he says he is there at Clemson? Well, I think it's, and I think he said before, um, and he said at the Cotton Bowl, actually, before the game, you know, he, it's got to be kind of a perfect situation, I think, for him to leave. It's got to be the right, perfect fit. And, um, you know, I think things are so good at Clemson. I mean, he's, he's, I think he's got the the richest contract uh, of any assistant in college football. Uh, he works for a guy. I think he he enjoys working for a guy that a lot of people like working for, and Davos Sweeney. Um, they've just kind of rolling there, you know. And so it's going to take a perfect fit. And uh, he said that last week uh, before the Cotton Bowl during media day. 
just hasn't. And uh, one of the day, one of these days, maybe it'll come, or maybe he'll just be a lifelong assistant. There's certainly a lot of those out there. So I had Tim Tebow on the show earlier. We chatted a little bit about parody. I suppose specifically championship parody. Uh, he's not sick of seeing Clemson Bama for the third time in four years. I mean, he, he said that he's a fan of seeing the excellence. I'm 100% there with him, uh, especially since those teams have given us some of the best games in college football history, in my opinion. Your take, do you think that a lack of championship parity recently is a potential problem for the fan interest in college football? Well, I mean, I don't know if it's a problem. You know, college football is, is bigger than any one or two teams, I think, uh, you know, I know this is kind of a, a storyline these days, is, you know, the same two teams back in the championship game for the third time in four years. But, uh, you know, I, I it, it's tough to uh, knock college football off of this pedestal, and I, I don't think that this is going to do it. Um, I, I, however, I, yeah, you know, you you'd like to see as a fan, I'm sure you'd like to see a little more parity. And I think you'll see it coming soon. Um, usually these things happen like this, where you have this, these run, this run of the, like kind of a dynasty or dynasties in this case, and they make everybody better. Um, they push everybody around them, and, and that's kind of what usually happens. So I think you'll probably see um, programs around the nation get better, be better because of this, because of the lack of parity. You tweeted the other day, uh, you said, I'm uh, quoting here, woke up realizing these three men are no longer coaching college football, Urban Meyer, Mark Richt, Bob Stutes. Uh, they are uh, 54, 58, and 58 respectively. And coaches... They've retired young before. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but it has happened throughout college football history. Obviously, some periods with more than others, but those are some pretty giant figures. You know, as the rest of the tweet noted with their with their career numbers, do you think that a trend is starting, or we're in the middle of a trend of young-ish coaches calling it quits before they're fired, before they're out of options, before they're 65, 70, whatever age? Or do you think this is just a total outlier that these three guys happen to retire within whatever it is, 18 months of each other. Oh, you know, I, I think you are probably seeing a little bit of a trend um, for various reasons. You know, these coaches, number one, make so much money um, that they can afford to retire pretty early. I think that's probably number one. They can save so much money, you know, back in the day, back in the, you know, you probably go got to go back maybe the early 90s or even late 80s or something. You uh, and maybe, maybe even the late '90s on on certain levels. Um, but coaches, I mean, they 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 had to work till they were 60 or 65, or some of them even 70. But they didn't make enough or save enough. But now, I mean, you've got coaches' contracts uh, that are eclipsing, you know, three four million dollars a year. And at that point, you could save a lot of money if you're a coach. Yeah. So I think that's one of it. One part of it. Another part is just honestly the internet, you know, in social media. These coaches dealing with with these players, you know, who are 30, 40 years younger than them, and dealing with that whole other aspect of um, the social media and the internet and all that stuff. I mean, I think that probably gets, it just it accelerates everything. I mean, the internet as a general, uh, internet coverage has accelerated everything in our sport, including 
fired or a team had a bad season or something, whatever, you know, in the newspaper a couple of days later. And now you know it instantaneously. It's just accelerated everything. And I think, in a way, some, some coaches have a hard time uh, dealing with that, um, I guess. And so it's just kind of, I think there are a lot of reasons, but I do. I think it's, I think it is kind of a trend, you know, we're seeing. And, and uh, I left off a few coaches on that list. Of course, they're not as young. But Paul Johnson, of course, Bill Snyder, you know, they're no longer coaching them. You know, you combine their wins and stuff, and it's probably it's, it's some incredible numbers. So you mentioned the money part of it. You mentioned the Internet thing. What what level do you think burnout plays in it? I mean, the coaches that I've talked to, you've been doing this longer than I have. you talked to more coaches than I have. Even, you know, the ones that I've talked to, most of them will admit that, yeah, it, it's it's a hard job. You're constantly on the phone. You're constantly texting recruits, um, and burnout does become a factor in it. How, how much of a factor do you think that really is, or do you think it has more to do with items that you mentioned than anything else? Well, I think, yeah, I think you, a lot of these coaches are burning out because, uh, as you just mentioned, you know, just the, the uh, you mentioned texting, and, and when they didn't have text, you know, it's kind of like that, that kind of, it's kind of the same thing as what I was talking about as far as the internet and stuff. You, know, you have, you have the, the uh, Twitter direct messaging and, and just having to stay up on all that and texting is, I think that's involved, just technology, I guess, in general, you know, and technology uh, has uh, just accelerated everything and I think is leading to some coaches burning out. You know, it's, it's just like every job, like, I mean, you know, our job is, in the sports media business is, is different and certainly has its cases of burnouts because of technology. Uh, I was talking to a uh, newspaper reporter recently and we are talking about how, you know, you uh, right around the time I got into business, even just 12, 15 years ago, um, you didn't have Twitter and you weren't, you weren't having to tweet and keep up with news on Twitter and, Everything is so quick and fast, and it's just a 24-hour news cycle, basically. So for every for every job, uh, every job is changing with technology, and coaching is is right up there as well. I mean, it, it's evolving and changing, and it's become a 24-hour job, basically, just like a lot of different um, occupations uh, in the world because of technology. So of course, it, it's absolutely like other jobs. It, it's technology is going to push. Um, people and, and maybe push them out, you know, quicker than normal. About a, a week ago, you wrote an article. It's on SI.com. It was, let me grab it, December 26th, uh, called The Legend and Myth of the Halftime Adjustment. For those of you who haven't read it yet, uh, you, you basically run down kind of a list of things about halftime in a locker room. You know, guys using the bathroom more at home than on the road because it's a nicer bathroom at home. You know, having extra whiteboards in case a coach smashes one. A lot of things that fans aren't really thinking about when, when the fans themselves are going to the bathroom or grabbing whatever. And in I'm curious, in your experience, in halftime locker rooms or talking to people that have been in locker rooms a lot, what's the, the biggest myth about those you know, 13, 14, 15, whatever minutes of halftime in which players and coaches are actually in the locker room? Well, I think probably the biggest myth is the big old you know, halftime speech, you know, the, the rousing, uh, motivational, you know, Newt Rockney type standing on a chair, yelling and screaming, uh, speech. Um, they just don't happen very often. And, uh, mainly because you just don't have time. That's the thing that I don't think 
people understand that I hope they do after reading that story is it halftime is so quick. Uh, it's twenty minutes and that's it. And twenty minutes is, is uh, a short amount of time when you have and really it's not even twenty minutes because um, you you have to have time to get off the field and walk to the locker room and then you have to have time to go back on. So you really have it's about twelve to fourteen minutes and that's just so quick. And yeah, players are using the bathroom, and then you have to meet and try to do schematic adjustments. And there's not a whole lot of rah-rah speeches, and there's not really a whole lot you can do. You can change and have them schematically. I mean, a player could hear there, maybe something like that, but it's just not a whole lot of intricate changing. So just there, it's just a whole myth about halftime. I mean, we, we got started on that story by Nick Saban's decision last year with his halftime decision of, of changing his quarterbacks. And, um, kind of ask myself, well, I wonder what else happens during a halftime, you know, and you start calling around and, and you get a pretty clear idea that it's nothing like we all thought. Ross, you're going to be in Santa Clara for the National Championship game. Hey, curious, question for you. Do you think the title game should be played in the same spot every year? Like, for example, at the Rose Bowl every single season? Or do you like it shifting around like it is right now? Um, I think it's cool to shift around in different cities, you know. It's kind of unfortunate that this one is on the West Coast when both of these teams are... Um, you know, basically from the, the southeast, and, and uh, you know, I saw ticket sales aren't doing very well. I mean, you know, those fan bases are going to travel, but but yeah, you're going to get a lot of people that aren't going to travel just because it's so far away. But I still do like it, kind of moving around. Um, you know, it would probably make a little more sense if it was on a rotation. I've seen a lot of talk of that. If it was on like a three or four side rotation, um, that way people would just kind of know and get that you go to and, um, but at the same time you know and this is provides a good example uh, you get to go see new, new things new places new venues Ross thanks for the time uh, greatly appreciate the insight enjoy that national championship game safe travels and take care alrighty no problem thanks Ross Dellinger Sports Illustrated if you're not following him on Twitter he's at Ross Dellinger D-E-L-L-E-N-G-E-R so I'm going to be here once per week for now. That's the plan. Once per week for the High Motor Podcast. Tuesday or Wednesday usually, but we'll call some audibles here and there. Uh, you can follow the pod again on Twitter at High Motor Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at a Dowdy 88 We're going to call it here on the High Motor Podcast today. A reminder that we're on iTunes, Spreaker, Overcast, all those podcast apps. Please subscribe and come back. I'm going to be here every week. We're going to have a ton of fun. And thank you for listening to the first episode of the High Motor Podcast here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Oh